Well, welcome to worship in uh, the rhythm of our life together as a community at Bridges Church. Uh, again, if you're visiting today, we want to welcome you on this New Year's Eve day. And uh, it's not very often that New Year's Eve day comes on a, on a uh, Sunday. So I was uh, reading that it, it happens uh, four times every 28 years. The next time that we'll have a New Year's Eve day on a Sunday will be in six years. Uh, so it's actually kind of a unique uh, occurrence in terms of like coming together into worship as we stand together as a community at the cusp of, uh, of, a, of a new year. So I'm uh, delighted to be able to uh, preach today. And uh, Cliff, we had already prearranged for, uh, for me to do this. He'd, he'd been out of town. And, and, then, uh, and then last night he texted and said, well, uh, I'm not even going to show up, <laughs> probably. So he's under the weather, I think, with a number of folks so we can be just remembering Cliff as, uh, uh, as he's ill. Um, well, uh, a study was done about the top 10 New Year's resolutions. So I don't know about you if you do New Year's resolutions, but uh, a study was done about the top 10. And uh, uh, you can see here, I wonder what you would have guessed would have been the, the top uh, one or two. So here's, here's what you see up on the screen, uh, the top 10 resolutions from, uh, from, from 2017. So, uh, number one, as you might have guessed, right, losing, uh, losing weight or being kind of healthier eating. So, Denise and I were talking about New Year's resolutions just the other day, and uh, we talked about that, too. So, uh, <laughs> uh, that was on the list. So, uh, you can see the other things that are there. I was struck by number five, uh, do more exciting things. Oh, that's an interesting one. Uh, yeah, that's, I could probably go for that a little bit. Do more exciting things. So, uh, but as I looked at this, a couple observations I made. One was most of them are individual, which, right, we make individual resolutions. Some relate to other people, but they're individual. And um, as you might expect, uh, as a study done in the, the, in the U.S. Uh, across the culture, is, you know, there's nothing spiritual uh, about any of these resolutions, per se, right? There's some things there uh, about relationships which touch the gospel and touch what it means to be in relationship with God and people, but nothing explicitly that is um, that's spiritual. The other observation that I made as I thought about that is uh, I actually come to the end of this year where these New Year resolutions kind of call for... Um, uh, for sort of reflection and realize there's something I'm not satisfied with. Um, before I mention that, though, I, 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 I want to mention that maybe something that would be comforting to you uh, beyond this list, because a lot of folks do resolutions but then don't totally follow through. I'm sure that hasn't been true for any of you uh, in, in any way. But uh, I'm not sure that we're familiar with January 17th, the holiday, it's ditch your New Year's resolution day. So uh, I didn't know this was a holiday, and I found out about it this week. So um, feel totally free to make some resolutions uh, today. Not the ones, actually, that I'm going to call you to. Uh, I don't want you to ditch those. But uh, anything else, and then if you're not following through, feel free to celebrate on the 17th that maybe you, didn't, you weren't able to actually follow through. So... Um, but anyway, you can just sort of, I'm just signposting for you a holiday that uh, maybe you weren't familiar with. Um, but one of the observations I made uh, about, about myself with New Year's resolutions is I, 
I actually feel dissatisfied with my life with God. So the force of the culture, right, that says, think about New Year's resolutions, it's actually caused me to think about uh, more about my life with God. So in one way, that's probably good, right? If any of us get to a place where we're like, I'm totally down. I mean, I've got it all, you know, it's all done. It's all sealed up. My life with God's just okay. It's perfect. Then uh, there may be a problem there. Because the Scripture tells us that on this side of heaven, we're in the process of being transformed into the image of God. Paul says that um, uh, like with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, we're being transformed into the image of God from one degree of glory to the other. Paul also says that we are growing up in every way into Christ, into the measure of the full stature of Christ. So on this side of heaven, we're on a journey of transformation to become more like Jesus. And so there's always uh, more for us to be leaning into and to be stepping into to become more like the person that God's created us to be. Uh, so, uh, so we know that. And so it's probably good that I'm dissatisfied. But in another way, I realize it's not so good because the main kind of force of my thinking about dissatisfaction is the fact that it's, oh, it's kind of New Year's. You should think about new resolutions. And uh, in the life of faith, we should always be in a process of self-reflection and self-examination, that we could be before the Lord being attentive to ourselves and being attentive to the Lord and to the process of transformation that we're in. Um, in the 16th century, a man named Ignatius Loyola, who we might be familiar with because he founded uh, an order in, the, in what today is the Catholic Church uh, 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 called the Jesuits, a unique order in the Catholic Church in that they weren't cloistered or they hadn't taken a vow of stability, which means they would stay in one place. But actually, they were an order that had a commission from the Lord to be what he called contemplatives in action. They were out in the world. And so we know Jesuits today because they're the ones, among other things, that have planted universities and schools across the world. Well, to help the brothers as they were out doing this work, Ignatius Loyola developed what's called the Daily Examine, a set of three questions that he invited the brothers to use on a daily basis to help them reflect and examine and, in a sense, make new resolutions about uh, their life before the Lord. I don't know if you've ever seen this or heard of this, so I put the questions up on the screen. These are three questions. I actually commend them to us that we would be people of reflection and examination and resolution, not just at the new year, but on a regular basis in our life with God. The first question that he asked was this. It is, where have you sensed God's presence today? Give thanks. And then he said, ask this question. What have you, where have you missed or betrayed his presence? It's another way of saying maybe where have you missed the mark, sinned, uh, either by omission or commission. Ask forgiveness. And then lastly, this question was, what was one request or uh, hope or uh, uh, question that you're holding before God in the season of life? What's one question or request you're holding before the Lord? What do you want and desire? Ask and wait. He advised the brothers to take five minutes at the end of every day and to simply reflect on these questions. I've done this off and on over the years, uh, right now it's off, but as I thought about the beginning of this new year, I realized I want this to be on 
And uh, so I've, I've committed to, to develop this habit for myself that my own reflection and examination of my life, uh, my thoughts, my feelings, my actions, and my life with God would not be driven simply by the force of culture at the end of a new year and the beginning of a new one, but it would be part of how I live my life before God, a person that's reflected, a person that is self-examined, a person that's inviting the Lord uh, to continue and to do that transforming work that the Scripture tells us He's about all the time. So I commend these to you as well. Well, what about you? Do you feel any dissatisfaction in your life with God? Where do you feel a sense of um, wanting more, um, a sense of wanting to have more of God in your life or in the way that you live? Among other places, here's three that I feel dissatisfied with. The first is, I tend to strategize more than I seek God in prayer. When I face problems or issues, I strategize on my own rather than seek the Lord in prayer. The second is that I realize at this point of uh, the end of this year, I tend to turn inward under stress rather than, than to be transparent Uh, with the Lord and with others in the community of faith. I think God wants me to be more transparent before Him and others. And then lastly, um, I feel like I'm dissatisfied with how I'm more conformed to the world than being transformed by uh, God in how I view people and how I use my money. Those are three, among other places, that I realize I have some dissatisfaction in uh, my life with God. So if you're honest, this is a rhetorical question or one to just sit with for a moment, where are you dissatisfied with your life with God and how you live in a life of belonging to God and um, being about His purposes for you? The theme of today's sermon is to set or reset your heart and mind on Christ. My prayer is that you'll join me as we spend a few minutes in Scripture um, resetting your heart and mind on Christ, that you, in doing so, would um, be cultivating uh, a life of intimate love for God and a life of extravagant love for other people, which is the kind of life that God calls us into. Some 40 days after Jesus' birth, his young Jewish parents took him to church. They took him to the temple for the required religious ceremonies. It's what any devout young couple would have done. Only one of Jesus' biographers, Luke, records this visit. They're interrupted when they go to the temple by an older man and an older woman. Uh, Their names are Simeon and Anna. The scene is their only appearance in the Scripture, and after this, they just fade away this man and woman. But for the reader, their words and their lives are a source of inspiration and motivation towards a deep and satisfying way of knowing God. And so for us today, at the cusp of an old year and a new year, we're going to turn to them as they invite us and instruct us to reset our hearts and our minds on the Lord Jesus. Let's read the text together. I'll read it. You can follow along on the screen. 
So Luke records this encounter in chapter 2 of his book. After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms And praise God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day, At that moment, she came, and she began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Blessed be the word of the Lord. Well, what's happening in this setting? Three things to sort of get us into the context. The first is, what's happening is a religious ceremony. So there's three things going on here. Number one, it has to do with uh, the rites of circumcision. So in this text, Luke says that they've already been uh, to, the, to, the, to the temple and, and the rite of circumcision has already happened. It happens eight days after a, a, a Jewish boy is born. And so there's reference to that in the, in the text. Um, and so that's already, that's already happened. That circumcision represented the sign of the covenant. It said this male is set apart. He's brought into the covenant that Abraham was given by the Lord uh, we read about it in Genesis and Exodus that stead, says that Yahweh will be their God. Abraham will be the source of, uh, of, of, of um, a, a grand nation with many, 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 many people. And that there's a land that's being given to this people. So the circumcision's already taken place. The second thing that's going on here is a rite of purification. So in the Old Testament in Levitic, Leviticus, it said that when a woman gives birth, that after that time, for a period of roughly four weeks, she is unclean. She's considered unclean in the sense that she can't actually go into the temple uh, or in presence or touch anything that's holy. And so uh, these 33 days after uh, uh, the birth of a boy, uh, the mother would go to the temple and there would be a sacrifice that she offers and the sacrifice 
would be part of a ceremony that would uh, purify her from the uncleanliness associated uh, with, with the birth. And here it talks about in the text about bringing a type of sacrifice. In the Old Testament, it gave some options for the kinds of animals that could be brought for a sacrifice. And here we see, based on the text, that what it is that Mary's bringing it kind of reflects the fact of their poverty or their lack of resources in terms of bringing uh, birds or pigeons as a sacrifice for the Lord, that she would be uh, purified from her uncleanliness. This was typical and common and would be done by any woman that had given birth uh, in, uh, uh, in uh, the time of Christ. And then the last thing that's happening in this religious ceremony is a rite of dedication. So the Hebrews believed that every firstborn male or animal belonged to the Lord. Um, and uh, while firstborn animals were sacrificed, uh, firstborn boys were consecrated or set apart and given over to the Lord. And so there was a ceremony that took place uh, in which they, in a sense, dedicated their son uh, to, the, to the Lord and to the service of the Lord. And so it's a religious context. Obviously it is. It's in the temple. But the context is a typical set of religious uh, ceremonies that any young Jewish couple would be doing surrounding the birth of a child, the birth of a boy. And, uh, and so that's, that's kind of what's taking place there. The second thing that I think helps us set the setting is we read the text, and I'm very struck by this, is that uh, what's happening is a very personal encounter. It's a very tender and personal encounter that Anna and Simeon are having. The words of Simeon, now I am ready to die, are very striking. His longing and his hope, his attention, his preoccupations have been centered around the promise of God that he would not die before he sees the Lord's Messiah. And now, he has seen the Lord's Messiah. And he says, now I am ready to die. In a sense, there's nothing else that I need to live for. It's the penultimate moment of his life. And he's ready to die. What a tender and very personal expression from Simeon that we see in this text. And then he says personally, my eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen the salvation that you've promised from millennium to your people. My eyes have seen it. For Anna, it says that at the moment she came, at the moment, the text says at that moment she came and she began to praise God and speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. I think we can infer from the text that she was one of those. One of those people longing and looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. For Jerusalem to be released and to be freed from the oppression of the Roman Empire and to become all that the Scripture had said, Jerusalem, Zion, the city of the Lord on a hill, was to become. I don't know if you've ever looked at religious art very much. There is in the West, not only in the West, but in many cultures a considerable amount of art that has been painted and generated surrounding the Scripture. Sometimes, if, when we look at this art, it, it stirs the soul. Here's two pictures I want you to look at of this passage. One is by Rembrandt, and one is by his student. The one by Rembrandt was possibly his very last painting. He painted it in 1669, the year that he died, and it was found unfinished in his attic 
or rather in his workshop, the day after he died in 1669. One of his students, Arendt de Gelder, painted this other scene some 30 years later. They both are depicting Simeon. If we could just imagine the personal encounter in this text through through looking at at these pieces of art, we can see the sense of tenderness, personal, uh, personalness of a moment and an encounter that Simeon was having in Anna as well, though these, these pictures are largely around Simeon. And we can enter into the scene and get a stronger sense emotionally about what was happening for him. For the reader and for Theophilus, to whom Luke was actually writing his biography, um, it's clear that these old saints are looking at the Christ child and they're seeing the one that God-fearing, law-keeping, and faith-filled Jews had been looking and longing for for a long time. What else is happening in the scene? It's a religious ceremony. There's this personal encounter going on with uh, Simeon and Anna with this young couple and their baby. Um, The third thing is it's a holy moment. Um, So the images that we looked at, they beg the question, what did Simeon see? What was he seeing? So I like to suggest that what Simeon was seeing, though the text doesn't use these words, is that he was seeing the gospel. He was seeing the good news. Um, In Luke 2.10, the angel uses the word gospel when the angel speaks to the shepherds in the field and says this, don't be afraid, for see today I'm bringing you good news. I'm bringing you the gospel of great joy for all people. For today in the city of David has been born for you a Savior, a Messiah, the Lord. Later, Luke uses the word gospel in chapter 4 when he recounts Jesus' first words of public ministry. Perhaps these are familiar to you. Jesus was sitting in a synagogue and he took a scroll with Old Testament scripture on it uh, and he unfolded it and he read these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news, the gospel, to the poor. I think what Simeon and Anna see in the child Jesus is this gospel, this good news, the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel that they had been longing for, the redemption of Jerusalem, a light for revelation to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. They saw the Savior, the liberator that they had longed for, though He was coming in a way that they would soon discover to be very different than they had expected, but He was to be the one that would be the peacemaker, breaking down the walls of division between Jews and Gentiles, and inviting all the Gentiles into the family of God. For the follower of Jesus, there's nothing more hope-filled, more lovely, more attractive, more life-giving, more moving, more joy-producing, more satisfying, and more worthy than Jesus. Than seeing Jesus... The blind 19th century hymn writer, Fanny Crosby, perhaps you've heard of her, she wrote hundreds of hymns, but she was blind. And in one of her hymns, she wrote a stanza that referred to her vision of what it would be like on the other side of this life when she opened her eyes and she saw Jesus. She wrote these words from the song, it's in the third stanza in the song, the hymn, To God Be the Glory. Great things He has taught us, great things He has done, and great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. 
but purer and brighter and greater will be our wonder, our transport, when Jesus we see. It's particularly moving in some way that this blind woman is writing these words about her anticipation and her expectation on the other side of this life when God makes all things new, that she would open her eyes and would see Jesus. That same kind of maybe expectation or hope in some ways captures what Simeon and Anna were longing for and what they were seeing in the baby held by this young couple come to the church for this religious ceremony. For some of us in 2017, at the kind of cusp of the new year, I think um, maybe our, our vision is maybe a little bit blurred of this Christ. Our attention has been drawn away by other things. Our affections for Jesus, in some ways, maybe have been diminished. Or our distance from the Lord is too far to really see and recognize who He is. Such that we could maybe not speak these same words with conviction and with uh, confidence. That to see the Lord is the passion of our heart and our life. So I want to call us this morning to be like Simeon. Uh, and in doing so, to reset or set our mind and our hearts, uh, the eyes of our mind and heart, on this Lord Jesus. That He might invite us afresh into this life of intimate love with God and a life of extravagant love with uh, all people. Now, to have the kind of eyes that Simeon had, I think we need ourselves to see and embrace three things from the text. I'm going to tell you three things Uh, We're going to center on one of these three things. Uh, The first thing is is the treasure of a godly life. So the first thing I think to have the eyes that Simeon has in Anna is to be deeply rooted in in godliness. The second, uh, which we're not going to focus on today, but is in the text, is the beauty of the gospel. He sees Jesus, and in Jesus, the Christ child, he sees something very beautiful. And the text tells us it's marked by His words, if we look in verse uh, 29, that's where I think this gospel, the beauty of it, uh, Simeon is speaking to. And he says, God's faithful, his promises will be fulfilled, and the good news of salvation is for every person, Jew or Gentile, black or white, young or old, rich or poor, etc. So I think we need to have have eyes like Simeon, we need to have the treasure of a a godly life, we need to see the beauty and understand and hold the beauty of the gospel and then lastly uh, is that we need to understand there's a cost to following Christ which he refers to uh, in his words that he spoke specifically to Mary we're not going to focus on that but in those words he talked about how disruptive their son would be in the world into the lives of men and women he talked about the resistance that he was going to provoke and he talked about the pain that Mary would suffer um, all that's in the text. Today, to have the eyes of Simeon, I want us to just focus on that first part, the treasure of a godly life. The first thing we see in the text about the treasure of a godly life here is that these, it's, it's just, he says it's explicitly about Simeon. I think it refers to Anna as well, about their, righteous, their righteousness and devotion. They were righteous and they were devout. Um, central to Simeon's eyesight that he could be led by the Spirit and see the Christ child, I think, is his life anchored and rooted in godliness. He was not a priest or a ruler. 
So let's be clear about that. He was just a man. The text says there was a man. I love that. It's so innocuous. Just kind of, there was a guy. And that's Simeon. He was just an older man in the church. He had no role. What distinguishes him in the text is not a position, but it's his godliness of character. It says he was righteous and devout. For Anna, it said she never left the temple. She worshipped there day and night, fasting and praying. She probably lived there as a widow. Uh, there were spaces in the temple uh, where someone like her could live. She probably did. She was advanced in years. And she, you get the sense from the text, she's devoted in her service in worship of God. So righteousness or being just before God means being, it means being upright. It means um, living in accordance with um, kind of the high standards of character or morality. In the scripture, the word righteous is referred to a number of people. One that uh, uh, I was thinking about is Cornelius. He was the Italian soldier in, in, um, uh, in Acts 10 who got the vision uh, to have P- Peter come over to his house to tell him uh, about something of the Lord that he needed to know that day. Um, righteousness focuses a lot on, on conduct towards other people. It's being upright before God, but upright in our conduct towards others. The notion of devotion, um, you know, it's not a word we use a lot. Uh, It's about being reverent, God-fearing. It has in it the sense of being careful, careful to obey, careful to honor honor God. A person who's devoted is very deliberate and careful about uh, their commitments and their convictions, and in this sense, to the Lord. So, Simeon and Anna, faithful temple goers. Um, Anna lived probably at the temple. Um, we get a sense that these are two people for whom uh, the Lord's just uh, Yahweh, the, the faith of Israel. It's not just sort of a, an add-on to their life, but it's at the center of who they are and how they live. Well, being righteous and devoted, they're, not, um, they're probably not qualities that folk, folk, I would say folks are aspiring to in culture, our culture today. Um, but the Bible really esteems righteousness and devotion. Hear these words from Proverbs. The desire of the righteous ends only in good. Proverbs 11.23 Proverbs 11.5 The righteousness of the blameless makes a straight way for them. Proverbs 10.30 The righteous will never be uprooted. Proverbs 10.28 The prospect of the righteous is joy. And then in the New Testament, um, this verse. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God from the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew 5. Um, Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. Doesn't that uh, characterize Simeon? A man righteous and devout, pure of heart. And indeed, what does he see? The Christ child, God incarnate. Well, I want to suggest a, a habit for us. So This is the resolution part. I want to suggest a habit for us uh, uh, that we might partake in the beginning of the new year. It's the kind of habit, I kind of feel a little sheepish about it, because it's like, of course this is what someone standing in the church, front of the church, would say uh, uh, in a, to a bunch of uh, religious or God-seeking folks. So uh, uh, the, the habit is, uh, 
is to have a daily quiet time. So in the evangelical church, that means uh, having a, uh, a time devoted to set aside each day to, to uh, reading scripture and praying. Um, but I can think of no more effective and no more uh, meaningful habit to cultivate righteousness, devotion, and in- intimacy with God than having a daily quiet time. Um, and it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a habit that um, any one of us probably here could speak to, but yet it's a habit um, that often slips to the side in our life. And yet, I think it is the, at the foundation of being anchored and rooted in godliness. Um, it cultivates righteousness. The psalmist says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. James says it cultivates devotion and intimacy with God. He says, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. Do you want more of God in your life? Draw near to Him. And there's no better way to draw near than to set aside space and time to sit and to read Scripture and to pray. I have a contemporary model of this that I want to suggest. Uh, The contemporary model is John Wooden. John Wooden coached uh, basketball at a high school and college level for 40 years. He coached and is most remembered for his tenure at UCLA, coaching the UCLA Bruins from 1948 to 1975, during which they had a streak of 88 wins in a row and 10 national championships in the NCAA. He's well known for his pyramid of success, a set of values and habits to live an effective life. And he taught his he uh, and he's also known because he was a man of faith, and he taught his students uh, deep character. He said, "It's the the job of a coach is not to make a better player; it's to make a better person." And he he died at the age of ninety nine uh, at the UCLA Medical Center in twenty ten. I remember that because. Um, my son was a student at UCLA at that time, and he was part of a large crowd of people that had gathered outside the UCLA Medical Center. Uh, at the, they knew that he would die probably in that day. Um, John Wooden was a unique person. Um, he had a daily quiet time. So he's our contemporary model, I want to suggest. Here's what he said. You can see it on the screen. I've always read the Bible. I did so as a youth. In college, I started virtually every day with a Bible reading. Nellie, his wife, and I read the scriptures together most evenings of our married lives. We read with our children when they were younger. I'd learned the practice from my dad. I didn't read the Bible to please mom, dad, or Nellie. It was a habit I enjoyed very much, a habit of love, not one of requirement or drudgery. It wasn't something just to do. It It was never a chore, and I enjoyed it. My exhortation to us is to reset... Uh, our hearts and minds on Christ through the habit of a daily quiet time. And if you need help with how to do that, talk to me. There's a ton of resources that I could make available to you. The second thing in the text about cultivating uh, a, a life of where it, the treasure of kind of godliness in one's life has to do with being sensitive, sens- being sensitive to the Spirit. So that's true about Simeon. In the text, It says that he was deeply influenced and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Three ways, three words, three phrases. Verse 25, the Holy Spirit was upon him. Second, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. 
that he would not die until he saw the Christ child. And in verse 27, he was moved by the Spirit when Mary and Joseph went into the temple. He was moved to go over to where they were. Um, it's unusual to read in the Scriptures before, uh, before the, the, the coming of the Spirit to all believers in Acts 2 and Pentecost of men and women being so deeply influenced by the Holy Spirit as Simeon. He was a special man. Um, well, following Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came to all who profess faith in Christ, um, the, the, the Holy Spirit is a normal part of um, and being filled with the Spirit is a normal part of what it means to live the Christian life. It, if we read the text throughout, if we read the New Testament, you get the sense that it was just normal. People were, were referred to as being filled with the Spirit as a normal way of living. Um, in, uh, in, Paul talks about living by the Spirit in Galatians 5.16. He talks about being guided by the Spirit in Galatians 5.25. In Acts 1.8, it says when this, that the Spirit would be upon all believers and give them power to be witnesses, people who tell the story of Jesus in their own lives. And in Ephesians 5.18, Paul says he gives an admonition to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, the sense is, from the Scripture, it's a normal part of Christian life, but there's an act of the will, an act of volition that we need to take to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit's in us, but being filled with the Spirit is something that we need to seek after and to pursue. There's a way in which the text, the Scripture tells us or gives the impression that um, the Spirit can be within us, but, we, but we're not necessarily being filled with the Spirit. We actually need to be filled. He gives the exhortation, be filled with the Spirit. So you have the sense then that there's... There's been depletion. Excuse me, it's, it's like a, a balloon. Some of the air's gone out of it. Blow it back up. That's what he's saying. Blow back up the Spirit in your life. Uh, it's a command. So um, a question that, that when I read this text, it causes me to ask is, um, am I a person that's led by the Spirit in the way I live my life? How would you answer that for yourself? Do you, would you say you're a Spirit-led Christian? Um, in the evangelical church, the Spirit is really the forgotten part of the Trinity, in my view of things. So we, you hear less preaching about it, less study about it. Would you consider yourself a spirit-led Christian, a spirit-led person? Do you live and walk each day, as Paul said, in step with the Holy Spirit? I want to call us today to reset our hearts and minds on Christ through the example of Simeon by being someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, being filled with the Spirit means to develop our capacity to believe God and His purposes. It's a capacity of belief or confidence in God. It's expanding our confidence in God and then living uh, with a fuller, more robust, more profound, more deeply seated, more convicted confidence in the living God in your life. In John seven thirty seven, Jesus said, Let anyone who's thirsty come to Me and let the one who believes in Me drink. As the Scripture has said, out of the believer's heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, he said this about the Spirit. How does one get filled with the Spirit? According to Jesus' words here. Number one, go to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He says, come to me, any who are thirsty. How do we come to Jesus? We come to Him by praying. By stopping and in humility and in need. 
coming to the Lord and speaking to Him. And then the text says, once you come to Jesus, you need to drink because he is the, there's, there's living water. Out of the believer's heart will flow rivers of living water. He said this about the Holy Spirit. You come and drink. You drink the Spirit in a sense when you come to Jesus and pray. When you drink of, from Jesus, you drink this living water. How do you do that? It's very simple. You do that, according to the text, by professing your belief and your confidence in him. It's reasserting the lordship, the leadership of Jesus in your life. Do you ever have those times where you realize uh, Jesus has kind of slipped to the margin? You're leading your life more out of your own intuitions, your own sensibilities, your own hopes, your own desires, your own capabilities. And Jesus has been pushed to the margins. The way that we get filled with the Spirit is we come to Jesus and pray and we re assert or reconfessed Jesus you are the leader of my life I want to replace you at the center come and fill me with a deeper confidence and belief in you as a big God spirit fill me up when we reassert that before the Lord the text says the spirit fills us we are filled with the Holy Spirit the results of that are that our thirsts are quenched Our capacity to believe God and His purposes expand. The power for witness in our life, it grows. And we're filled with the Lord's Spirit. So the the habit or prayer, again, I'm a little sheepish about it, kind of like, oh, once again, that I'm suggesting to us for this new year is to be people that pray. Prayer expresses our humility and our need alongside our confidence and belief in God's character and purposes. Praying expresses our humility and our need right alongside our confidence and belief in God's character and His purposes and resources. A praying person is almost always a filled with the Spirit person. If you know people around you that you would say, that's a praying person, that's an Anna, that's a Simeon-like person, righteous, devout, prayerful, they're most likely a spirit-filled person as well. Here's a few tips to cultivate the habit of prayer. One, pray immediately. When you have need, when you have a problem, when you have realize a hope, um, an opportunity, pray immediately. Pray in the moment. Pray on your own. Grab someone, but pray immediately. Secondly is pray expectantly. That's harder than it might seem. Because to pray expectantly requires us to call forth the fullness of our convictions about who God is. Um, And so, if we're spending time before the Lord, He will be developing in us, through His Word, a bigger picture of His bigness, His power, His compassion. But to come to the Lord, not out of some um, rote kind of like obligation to pray, but to come expectantly. Thirdly, pray continuously. Don't stop. Keep at it. And then lastly, look for answers. How many of you pray, but then you don't really expect God to do something and you never really look for answers. Look for answers. Um, 
One way to cultivate this in the life of our church would be to come at 9.15 on Sunday mornings and pray downstairs or upstairs or behind here with a handful of folks that um, gather to pray each uh, Sunday. The, uh, the contemporary model I want to suggest, contemporary, is a man named George Mueller. I don't know if any of you have heard of George. Uh, George uh, lived in the um, 19th century. He was... Uh, in England, he was, a, he was an evangelist, but more known for his, um, uh, he started orphanages. And he, uh, he, uh, he probably cared for over 10,000 orphans in the course of his life. Um, he established 117 schools in England um, and gave lots of, you know, education to kids. But what he's most known for in, uh, as a, in terms of character is that he was a man of prayer, um, he would say uh, as a man of prayer, he was a man of prayer that prayed and was filled with God's Spirit and looked to God's Spirit to lead him. He said, we should go to the Lord repeatedly in prayer and ask him to teach us by his Spirit through his Word. He says, I say this by his Spirit through his Word because if we should think that his Spirit would lead us to do so-and-so because certain facts are so-and-so and yet his words opposed to the step which we're going to take, we'd be deceiving ourselves. Um, the stories told of George Mueller, I don't know if you've heard the story, um, as an as a example of the deep-seated conviction and confidence and expectancy he had about God in prayer, about him being on a boat. He was going to um, a, uh, a speaking engagement. And the, the story is told by a friend of his that says, um, uh, that Mueller said, he, I, when I first came to America 31 years ago, this was sometime in the 1800s. I crossed the Atlantic with the captain of a steamer who was one of the most... Uh, uh, or, let me make sure I have the, uh, uh, the characters right. So this person's talking about George Mueller. This person came to America. He crossed the Atlantic uh, with the captain of a steamer and he met one of the most devoted men that he ever knew. So he says that they were off the banks of Newfoundland and... Uh, um, the man said, Mr. Inglis, the last time I crossed here five weeks ago, one of the most extraordinary things happened that's completely revolutionized the whole of my Christian life. Up at that time, I was one of your ordinary Christians. We had a man of God on board, George Mueller of Bristol. I'd been on the bridge for 22 hours and never left it. I was startled by someone tapping me on the shoulder. It was George Mueller. Captain, he said, I've come to tell you I must be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon. This was Wednesday. It's impossible, I said. Very well, if your ship can't take me, God will find some other means of locomotion to take me. I've never broken an engagement in 57 years. I would willingly help you, but how can I? I'm helpless, said the captain. Uh, let us go down to the chart room and let's pray. I look at this man and I thought to myself, what lunatic asylum could the man have come from? I've never heard of such a thing. Mr. Mueller, do you not know how dense the fog is? No, he replied, my eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. He went down on his knees and he prayed one of the most simple prayers. I thought to myself, that would suit a children's class where the children are eight or nine years old. The burden of the prayer was something like this. Oh Lord, if it's consistent with thy will, please remove the fog in five minutes. You know the engagement you made for me in Quebec for Saturday? I believe it's your will. When he had finished, I was going to pray, but he put his hand on my shoulder and told me not to pray. 
First, he said, you don't believe God will do it. And secondly, I believe he's already done it. And there's no need whatsoever for you to have to pray. (laughs) I like that. You don't believe God's going to do it, so don't even bother. (laughs) I looked at him and George Mueller said, Captain, I've known the Lord for for 57 years. And there's never been a single day that I have failed to take an audience with the king. Get up, Captain, and open the door, and you'll find that the fog is gone. I got up, and the fog was gone. On Saturday afternoon, George Mueller was in Quebec. I want to call us to reset our hearts and our minds on Christ this new year by being filled with the Spirit through the habit of prayer. And the last thing that I want to say from the text as a way of calling us into this treasured life of godliness in this new year is seen in the words from the text that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Um, It's a remarkable thing about Simeon and Anna's faith about how they were waiting, longing. Simeon waited with a deep sense of longing for the consolation of Israel, the promise from the Holy Spirit and the promise from the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't die until he saw this Christ child. Anna waited and longed by fasting and praying and never leaving the temple, longing for the redemption of of Jerusalem. When Simeon sees the child, he sees the long-awaited fulfillment of Isaiah 49.13. It speaks of the Lord's consolation or comfort for Israel. For the Lord's comforted His people and will have compassion on His suffering ones, Isaiah says. The consolation of Israel is is, is, was going to be this time when war-weary, occupied Jerusalem would be freed, would receive comfort and relief from the Lord. It was popularly expected that it would come about by a Messiah. Simeon holds the child in his arms and he sees this longed-for fulfillment happening right before his very eyes. If you could study the, the references in the Old Testament, you'd see that in Simeon's very short prayer, he's pulling out phrases and he's pulling out words of promise from God in the Old Testament. Two that I'll bring to your attention is this. When he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation, he's making reference to Isaiah's words in chapter 52. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. In all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. But Simeon says, it's a salvation which you've prepared in the sight of all peoples. He's pulling out the words from Isaiah in chapter 40. The glory, of the, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all humankind together will see it. All peoples will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And there's more even in this text. Isaiah is pulling out these promises from the Old Testament and saying they are fulfilled in his prayer in this very moment. Simeon's been hanging on to life in order to see the Spirit's promise fulfilled, and now it's occurred, and now he's able to pass in peace. What strikes me as unique and compelling about Simeon and his waiting is that they weren't waiting for something personal, but they're waiting for something communal. They're waiting for not something individualistic, but for something missional in the scheme of God's purposes. What captivated their heart, what drove their anticipation, what nourished their expectation was a promise from the Lord that there would be a Savior for all of Israel. There's a lot of promises in the Scriptures today that are bigger and beyond any one of us. 
and relate to the coming of a kingdom that's already come but has not yet fully been revealed. The kingdom of God. Um, in Second Peter, the Scripture says in chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's a promise of the, of the Lord. In Matthew 25, 31, a promise. Christ will come again and all the nations will be gathered unto Him. Luke 18, 7. Will not God grant justice to His chosen ones who cry out to Him day and night? And on and on. The Scripture speaks to a kingdom that is here but not fulfilled that will come in a day in which uh, all things will be made new. That The Scripture has, is full of promises that are bigger than you or I and the, the realities of our own lives which God sees. But there's a bigger story that the Lord's writing that is yet to be completed and that he invites us to see and to enter into and to cooperate and to collaborate with him with our prayers and with the way we live our lives. Have you ever been around missionaries from our church um, who long deeply for a breakthrough of God among a Muslim people group or in a Chinese city or among international students studying at UCR? Maybe you, maybe you. Have you ever felt an unction from the Lord uh, or a breaking in your heart that longs for peace, that longs for economic and racial justice, that longs for reconciliation among all people, that longs for the gospel to go to the nations? Something that God stirs in you that's bigger than your own life and bigger than your own needs. In the last six years as a campus pastor with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in Southern California, my colleagues and I have been stirred by the Lord to seek Him for revival, a breakthrough or an awakening on campuses where the Lord would come and stir up eyes that would see Jesus in a coming to the Lord that would cause a transformation on our campuses. The result of this seeking the Lord for revival, something bigger than us that we've that we've leaned into and longed for is that we've, we've, we've prayed more deeply. We have fasted as Anna did in this passage. We've asked more regularly uh, of the Lord and we've risked more courageously in how we live our lives and do our ministry. The habit that I want to suggest for this last attribute of Simeon uh, about longing or waiting for the consolation of Israel or longing or waiting for the bigger thing that the Lord's doing, is the habit of fasting. The New Testament presumes that all Christians, all believers, fast. It's actually a habit that we don't talk about that much in the evangelical church. Um, in Matthew 6.16, he writes, and whenever you fast, and whenever you fast. So you have the sense that it's like, oh, it's like, oh, you just do this. That's what, that's what, Faith-filled people do. They fast. Uh, Whenever you fast. um, What is fasting? I like this quote from John Piper. Christian fasting at its root is the hunger of a homesickness for God. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. (laughs) It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but it's endless nibbling at the table of the world. That's very eloquent. Um, So Christian fasting. 
coming before the Lord, there's so much to say about this. That, uh, and, and, and maybe what I'll do is put a few things online that you could look at if you, if you wanted to cultivate this habit. Uh, but Christian fasting is uh, a way of denying ourselves in light of a greater hunger. To say that I actually have an appetite that's bigger than my own senses for media or for food or for anything else that my greatest hunger is for the Lord and I'm going to seek the Lord um, by fasting because I want more of Him in my life or I long to see His glory or His purposes fulfilled in this place or this area. Um, the contemporary model for this, uh, I, I actually will suggest, is, uh, is an example from three years ago in our own church in 2014, um, in the fall of 2014. I think that's right after we had come to this location and moved from the other location. Um, I put some. I wanted to read the prayer that was part of a prayer guide for fasting during this month of fasting in the fall of 2014 because it reflects the kind of heart that longs or waits for something bigger than just what's happening in our own lives that I think God wants to cultivate in us. Here's from the prayer guide for that time in our church. We fast as an expression of our dissatisfied contentment with the state of our own spiritual vitality and in our church. We seek for our own lives and those of our brothers and sisters at Bridges to be renewed by the Holy Spirit. We're thankful and content with what Christ has done, but we're dissatisfied until God gives us more. We know that His power and will to work in and through our congregation is greater than what we have seen, and so we seek the Spirit for more. Spirit, awaken a greater power in our church to reveal the resurrected Christ in the city of Riverside and to the world. Captivate us afresh with your vision for Spirit-led witness in each of our lives, a bold and hope-filled witness that changes and transforms the lives of people in the world around us. Lord Jesus, release a mighty work of supernatural new birth at an unprecedented scale. Make us spirit-led world changers for your glory and the ultimate blessing for those we consider our neighbor. Fill our nets to overflowing. We're hungry for the bigger catch. Fill our nets, sink our boats, stretch our hearts, burst our wineskins, exceed our plans, overwhelm our highest imaginations. When's the last time you prayed like that? I'd say it's been a while since I prayed like that. For something bigger than my own life. For the vision and purposes of God in and through our church and in our world. That's the kind of prayer, the kind of longing and the waiting and the hoping that we see in the life of Simeon and Anna. They were caught up in God's story. They were allowing their lives to cooperate and be caught up in the work of God that he had for the world. And God invites us to be caught up in that same kind of life, bigger than our small concerns that the Lord sees and he's engaged with. But there's a bigger story that he's writing that he calls us to be a part of. So I invite us to reset our hearts and minds this year on Christ through the habit of fasting and seeking the Lord for the fulfillment of the promises of His kingdom here in our, in our own lives and it bridges through the habit, this habit of fasting. Well, let me bring us to a close. Anna and Simeon, models for us of a man and a woman who have the treasure 
of a life of godliness, the treasure of a lives rooted and anchored in the Lord that give them the capacity to see Jesus. I know about you, but I want to see Jesus afresh, anew in my own life, that my own love for Him, my own life of intimate belonging to Jesus uh, would expand and be deeper. And I, and I want to see Jesus because the Scripture tells us that He's at work ahead of us wherever we go. And I want to be like Simeon that can see the Lord and get caught up in what He's doing in any place or relationship that He calls me to. So I call us to pursue the treasure of a godly life that's displayed in Anna and Simeon's lives. We see righteousness and devotion. I call us to the habit of a daily quiet time. We see sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. I call us to the habit of being filled with the Spirit through the habit of prayer. And we see in their lives a longing for God's kingdom. And we see it expressed in Anna's life through the habit of fasting. Might as we enter this new year, the Lord draw our hearts and our minds to Jesus and that we might see Him with the same fervency and the same hope, the same longing, the same passion, the same joy and love that we see Anna and Simeon having as they see the Lord baby Jesus held in front of them. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, um, we don't want to be people that um, live lives of faith that uh, uh, are just average. Lives of faith that are just, it's just something we do. Um, You call us the living God into relationship with you and tell us that the life that we've always hoped for and longed for is found when you lead us. Um, and when you have come to restore us, uh, both to give us new life and restore us into your image. So we invite you today to come and um, draw us afresh into your presence, into new habits and new practices, new rhythms of putting you at the center, believing that as we do that, uh, the life we've always wanted will be realized, a life of deep intimacy with you and love for you, the capacity to have extravagant love for other people because you you fill us with your love. Um, we want to see you afresh and we want uh, your kingdom to come. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen.